So there's like three parts of our personality. So there's the intellectual, there's the spiritual, and there's the physical. And a lot of people will either focus on like the physical, I'm going to become healthy and fit and strong. And then they become obsessed with that part of their lives. Or there are people who are so focused on spiritual that they, they're not making a lot of money because all their emphasis is on, on just connecting on a spiritual level. And then there's people who are, like I said, with PhDs or people stuck in the conscious mind or just in the intellectual mind and not integrating the, the other parts. So the holistic viewpoint really is to combine the spiritual, the intellectual and the physical. And that there are three ways that we really feed ourselves. And one is through our thoughts and our thinking. The other one is through our environment and who we're hanging out with and what we breathe. And the other one is what we eat, the foods we put into our body. And so all that is going to create what shows up in our physical state, emotional state and our mental state. And understand that they have to work together. This week's guest, Barbara Doust, has lived a transformational life. From acting, directing and storytelling, she's now an internationally respected author, speaker, success coach, business growth accelerator. Essentially, she is a domain expert, a storyteller and a difference maker for people's lives. For me, Barbara really understands how our minds are coded and how to unlock the change that people really desire and to unleash the creative potential and imagination to change their personal realities. As Barbara says, she helps people get out of their own way, break up with procrastination and say goodbye to perfectionism and stop postponing the life of their dreams. Now, over to Barbara. Today, my guest is Barbara Doust. So I'm really excited to sit down with you, Barbara. So welcome to the Impossible Network. Well, thank you for having me, Mark. It's a pleasure. Excellent. Well, I know we're going to get in your talk about specifics of what you do and why you do it and how you do it. But before we get into that, I really want to get into more about you as a person and who you are, who you think you are as a human being, your unique characteristics, your values, your principles, your worldview, and, and also who made you you or what made you you. So perhaps you could maybe just uh, enlighten us into those those two big questions. Sure. Thank you for asking. Not too many people who ask, Mark, you know, so I've been thinking about, uh, I would share. And I would say, you know, growing up in Canada had a lot of influence over who I am, as well as I was born to a French Canadian father and an English mother who was born in Newfoundland. And there could not have been a stranger combo. And they were married nine months after meeting one another. My father spoke French. My mother spoke English. They did not speak each other's language at all. It's a good start. <laughs> it's a very interesting start. I, isn't I it? could, I could actually say that, but I married an English woman and we didn't speak the same language. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, this is, you know, very literally, they did not speak each other's language. And at the time that I was growing up in Montreal, it was more, um, there, there were higher percentages of English speaking people than French, but my father was one of 14 children and my mother was one of six children. I would say that really riding the fence between French and English because I wasn't raised with an awareness of racism 
You know, I was raised with more of an awareness of the French against the English, the English against the French. My mother's parents did not accept my father, you know, him being French. And it was difficult for my mother to be with my father's parents because they didn't speak a word of English. So I was more aware of defending both sides. So if I was with French people and they complained about the English, I stood up for the English. And when I was, you know, on the English side and they complained about the French, I stood up for the French. And I think I just had always a natural um, desire and, you know, pull to defend the underdog. I was also, my father was a superintendent at one of the largest psychiatric institutions in Canada. And we eventually moved to the grounds of this institution. So my entire family worked at this psychiatric institution and it was like 11 pavilions large. It was a city onto its own. So whenever anybody attacked people with mental health issues or limitations, disabilities, I had a really strong desire, just a strong connection to defending, you know, the, the underdog. Was that something you think was just natural to you or was it nurtured by your parents? No, I think it was just more natural to me because I loved my father. I loved my mother. So if anybody had anything negative to say about either side, I was going to come from a place of love. And, you know, and even when I worked at the hospital, the, it's always another perspective. So I could always, as a, I think it was very natural for me to have, um, a perspective that was two sides of the coin. So I was always jumping into the other perspective. I mean, my partner now, we've been together for quite some time. You know, even he, if he complains about something, I'm always throwing in the other side, the other perspective, which can be frustrating, you know, for people who want to be heard or for people who want to vent or for people who want to complain. But I don't nourish just one side of the coin. I mean, that being a sort of an empath to be able to see both sides, to stand back, is a, is a rare quality. To be a naturally, a naturally uh, developed rare quality. What, what about your siblings? Did they exhibit this characteristic or was it just unique to you? Well, I think that well, I have one sister and we're night and day, very, very different. But I would say more than anything out of all of my relatives, I was the oddball. I was the you know, the black sheep of the family because I was never a follower and um, I didn't obey the rules, so to speak. And I was always, I was always doing things that people considered um, out of the norm, unusual, uh, crazy. I was actually known as stupid Barbara. When you said people called you that, who? Yeah. Within the family? Within the family, mostly the family and cousins and aunts and uncles. And I was just really odd to them and different in ways that, and it was endearing. It was because I would do things that most people wouldn't do, you know, and uh, I like I left the country and moved 3000 miles away from home, which was very out of the norm and unusual. Most people in my family kind of were in lockdown in the same place for 20, 30 years of their lives, you know? So I was the adventurous one and I was the one who um, was an artist and nobody else in the family was an artist. 
So that was confusing for people. How did that, I mean, I'm, you haven't said uh, which age or what age these people started to recognize your difference. But when you're called out for being different, often in early your, these early years of development, it can have a negative impact on someone's self-perception. How did that, that let's say the, not stigmatizing, but the giving you some sort of characterization of being slightly different, how did that make you feel? Well, I think because I was very stubborn, that there was, it gave me more fuel. Mm. Nobody was going to stop me. Okay, so it had an empowering effect. It had an empowering effect. I think that I had a lot of self-confidence and determination and will. Something was driving me. I didn't know why I wanted it. I had no idea uh, why I wanted to be in the arts or to express myself the way that I did. I think that over the years, I've come to understand differently, you know, that um, I was a ball of energy and that energy needed to be placed somewhere. And so if I wasn't singing from the rooftops and drawing big murals on my bedroom walls, and I remember my father building a sandbox for me and he dug it like six feet deep and I would bury myself up to my head. <laughs> and also I would, I would last for five hours in a sandbox building cities and, you know, city hall and all these buildings and, you know, and just kind of navigate little cars through the cities. And I just was always occupying myself. I was climbing trees. I was, you know, I was swimming and I was very athletic. So my father's influence was a, a lot of sports. And my father's influence was he wanted a boy. You know, he didn't get his boys, but he sure did treat us like his boys. So I was the, the goaltender to his hockey slap shots in the laneway during the winter nights, you know, and built a very strong resilience. And whereas my mother was more, she couldn't even throw a ball, you know, to save her life. And she was the one who dressed my sister and I maybe three times a day in new outfits because we were her little dolls. So I had like this odd mixture of, you know, fashion and femininity as well as masculinity and, you know, uh, termination. It, it wasn't even that I was feeling competitive as much as I think part of the athletic background was more about do your best, do your best, be your best, go for the best, you know, make that slap shot. So I, I feel you've, you have answered who you are in terms of this empath individual with unique characteristics, a vigorous, vibrant imagination, endless energy, and that the impact of what made you you sounds to be that it was partly parentally driven, but also something just innate in you. This desire to be seen, to be heard, to have impact. I mean, you've talked in, in previous interviews. The, and the book you've written about the need for recognition. Is that something that emerged before you left home to go 3,000 miles away or 2,000 miles away? Or was it something that you were always seeking some form of uh, recognition, positive reinforcement for your parents? I think I, I got recognition, but I didn't, I, I don't think I was understood. So there's a difference there. You know, I felt very loved, felt recognized, but I, I don't think I felt understood. 
So it was more about seeking approval. And as you may have heard me talk about, you know, I was five years old screaming on my bed. I want to be an actress. If I can't have, if I can't be an actress, I want a puppy and, you know, have a deep love and compassion for animals as well. But when, over the years, I never understood really why I wanted to act or sing and dance and express. I just know that I had all this energy and I had this drive because there was nobody around me who could say, let's put you in dance classes. We didn't have the money for it. Let's put you in acting classes. They, there weren't any acting classes. So there were after school in my elementary school, there, there was a teacher who did school plays. So I was in like every school play. And again, it wasn't even a desire for recognition or fame or to be seen as much as I just wanted to express. And I remember writing a contract when I was 12 years old that I had my parents sign. And I wrote a contract that they would send me to acting school by the time I was 13. And on my 13th birthday, I said to them, so, you know, am I, you know, am I going to acting school? No, they didn't have the money, you know, but they didn't say that. They just said, we never saw a contract. We never signed a contract. Plausible deniability. It was all, you know, what, what are you talking about? And then when I was in high school, the one drama teacher that we had, I, I majored, they didn't even have a major in drama. I majored in music vocals just so that I could get to the high school and the drama teacher had left. And then there was no drama teacher. So I was knocking at the principal's door saying, get, get a drama teacher, you know, and then he got an after school teacher. And then that teacher, unfortunately, was being sought after by the police and uh, he disappeared. And then, and I went to my math teacher and said, can you direct me in Death of a Salesman? I want to play Linda Lohman. Can you, you know, and then that fell apart. And every time I tried and tried and tried, I directed, you know, and choreographed the variety show. I made, I, I formed the drama club. I, plus I was on every sports team there was. And plus I was on the dance committee. Plus I was on students council. Plus, plus, plus. I was just this, again, energy, you know, this ball of energy. Then I decided I would direct the school play because nobody else was doing it. So I was the one who did it. And I mean, I even remember going and choreographing the can-can and, and going to, you know, downtown Montreal and meeting with this Russian lady who scared the pants off of me to get these authentic can-can outfits. I mean, there was like nothing stopping me until until it kind of stopped. And that's where I never understood. I understood as I became an acting instructor that it was really more about the addiction to feeling. That when you get up and you're being able to express emotion and it's unfiltered, and you can express hate and you can express ecstasy and you can express joy and you can move your body and you can feel alive and you can feel tingling throughout your entire core, that that becomes adrenaline that's very addictive. It's the feeling of being alive rather than feeling being suppressed. And so I was constantly fighting for that feeling. And it's what I also could identify in a lot. It's, it's not just like a lot of people would say that actors want to be loved and seek approval and need to be valued. Yeah. That's a basic need for all of us, which is what pulls us up to 
our greatness, right? What pulls us up to our genius, what pulls us up to what we, you know, are here to do, whatever it is. But I really think that, you know, there are natural storytellers. There are people who, you know, are, like you said, empathic and need to feel and, and also want to share. I think it's, it's really what, whatever floats your boat, whatever makes you feel alive. Whereas we're so trained in our educational system to be followers. We're not trained to be individuals. I want to go back to something you said when I asked you about, was it that then desire for recognition? You said you felt loved, you felt appreciated, but you didn't feel understood. Going back to I mean, at that point where you're jumping up in your beds, I want to be Shirley Temple. At a young age, seeking that approval, that innate desire for some form of creative outlet and to, to direct that energy. When you found that outlet in the school play, in the direction and all these out, this endless amount of energy that you had, was, was that feeling that, that's still not being understood there? that persist. I'm going to add in here. Do you think there was an element if you just didn't understand yourself as well? Yes, looking back on it now, but I don't think I felt that at the time. You know, I don't think that I felt like I didn't understand myself. I didn't even really think about that. I didn't understand why I wanted this. I just did it. Think about Edmund Hillary climbing Mount Everest and you know, a lot of people will say, let's connect to your why, you know, and when you have your why, that will drive you. But there are some people who just have a want. And for example, Edmund Hillary wanted to reach the top of Mount Everest, but he didn't exactly know his why. He just knew he wanted it. The, that want, that desire, you know, because as soon as you get into the why, I think the why is important you know, to help clarify people, but in, in the direction of their dreams, let's say. But sometimes the why gets you into an intellectual mode of this is why I have to do it. Mm -hmm. hmm. So you had that want then to do that. And you, you know, as I've learned a little bit about your life and the, the way you describe your decisions and your actions, that you, you that mission, it, it took you to California, your mission reached fruition, let's say, you know, you, you gained recognition to that many people would see as, as recognition, you know, w winning directing awards, scholarships, you know, that tireless work paid off and you achieved what many people would see great success and recognition. You've directed plays, you've, uh, you've acted, you've run a theater group in San Francisco, you've qualified to teach, you know, in most people's lives, that would be a very satisfied life of achievement and of recognition. But this quest that you, you described for recognition and that what you've also said perfect for perfection wasn't really you. And you've described yourself as a recovering perfectionist. So I'd love you to explain to us what was it, that moment of realization, that sense of awakening that maybe that wasn't you and you weren't on the right path and that that want was maybe misdirected. If, if it's fair to say that. One of my biggest values is to help others. And so I was always, always the person helping others, helping others, helping others, helping others. Standing up for the underdog. Standing up for the underdog. Mm -hmm. And also helping a lot more people have even greater success than me, really. Even when you were directing and acting yeah. and doing all this, that was the underlying pattern. Yeah. Yep. Okay. Absolutely. 
And I think that when it got to, I was teaching 25 drama classes a week. Plus I was running a theater company. Plus I was touring and acting in a Shakespeare company. Plus I was producing and directing for other theater companies. I mean, it, it's really a definition of insanity, Mark. I, I remember in one week I opened up three shows. So my average was, you know, sleeping four hours a night. And part of it was also just trying to sustain, trying to make money, you know, trying to survive. And that, so in order to survive, I had to add up all the little dollars to, to be able to create, you know, food and then pay the bills. So that became more until I collapsed, you know, and it was just exhaustion. And when I reached that state of exhaustion, that's when I realized that something had to change. So I decided it was really about at that point, by the time I reached 30, make money because I had never had a, any focus on money. I had never had any desire for money. I was counter uh, culture. I was counter capitalism. I was in order to survive as an artist, I had to be a struggling artist. It was the only way that I could defend buying clothes at thrift stores so that I could say I'm an artist. And it was a way to, I was like one of a handful of people out of my theater program, you know, in undergrad that continued to survive as an artist. So there was kind of like a stamp of pride, you know, that I was a struggling artist. It was the only way to defend continuing being an artist until I realized there's something wrong with this picture. And that because I had no emphasis on money, there was repulsion of money. And then I decided I'd go to UCLA for my master's so that I could get a teach, you know, a master's and, and teach at a university level. And then that way have some stability because there was never, I never felt that comfortable stability, which is not a bad thing, given that it kept driving me. But at the same time, I wanted life to be easier and to let go of the perfectionism. I could see that my work was boring me because my work was just tidy and I, I obsessed. It was almost like OCD, you know, that the poor actors that I worked with. I mean, they, they loved working with me as much as I loved working with them, but I kept pulling out of them the best, you know, and it's got to be better. It's got to be better. It's got to be better. And it's got to be better. And right down to where am I going to move that lamp on stage? It's got to be right here within an inch of its life. And it's like, that's called control. And the, the controlling was not allowing me to expand. And I had some kind of like unconscious, competent awareness around this. And I made the decision when I went to UCLA that I would really focus on failing, really making, allowing myself to make mistakes, creating like a, a safe environment where I would take risks. Can I stop you there? Yeah. I, well, you talked about the money and you said that your family, you came from, they didn't have much money. You've talked, you talk about future memories and past memories. Do you think you were living that life because it was scripted? You thought it was scripted in you from the family. It was just part of who you were, that you were another part of the extended family not having money. And you just settled for that? I think it was part of the programming, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Conditions and the circumstances and not having awareness around how to change or how to, you know, put emphasis on it. I mean, it was important to my family to get a nine to five job, get a pension. And it's not that they didn't have 
a desire for money, you know, but it wasn't, it wasn't about let's grow our wealth, you know, but yes, it was definitely part of the conditioning. And when you, when you so recognized that you were this perfectionist and it was about control and yet you made the decision to go out and get a master's to try and change, to flip the script, let's say. Yeah. Um, where did this, uh, and I've heard you talk about this before as well, this unconscious competence. What, what do you actually mean by that? So unconscious competence is that I wasn't really aware of what I w- was doing or how I was doing it in order to, now I understand that highly successful people seek failure. You know, it's really a way of making mistakes and you make the mistake and you'll learn by the mistake. I had more of the conditioning that if I made a mistake, it wasn't good. If I made a mistake, uh, which is the pull perfection thing. That's of, right. So in a way that perfection is, is almost your, uh, subco- your subconscious way of trying to avoid failure. That's right. That's exactly right. And so it was like, if I made a mistake, it was painful. Um, if I got feedback that wasn't approving, then it was painful. And I, I couldn't grow to the extent that I now know that people can grow. You know, you're holding on to a version of safety, of comfortability, of familiarity. So that's fascinating. Do you think from the, the people you've worked with and what you've observed and where you are now, is it fair to say that um, there's a simple binary approach to success, which is successful people embrace failure faster and don't fear failure? That's right. Uh-huh. Yeah. Wow. And so a lot of people that I work with, Mark, it's I encourage them to get outside the comfort zone, do something scary every single day, because what we're teaching the subconscious mind it subconscious mind is holding on to the comfort zone, right? Because it doesn't like humiliation. It doesn't like embarrassment. It doesn't like feeling inadequate. And then our ego mind, which is based on survival, the fight, flight, freeze response, they're holding on to what it already knows because the unknown represents the potential for death, the potential that will die, right? So I say to people every day, do something scary to get outside your comfort zone so that you teach your subconscious mind you're not going to die. So we've transposed from caveman days, our jungles of lions and tigers and bears, right onto our cities, you know? And so we're always looking for threat. The brain is 85% hardwired for negativity because it's constantly seeking, you know, threat. And if we're threatened in any way, we're going to go back into our cave. We're going to hide, right? And so risk-taking is really what a lot of highly successful people do. But surely that must concern you, are the state of our universities and this culture of safe spaces that we're seeing um, emerging now even in corporations and work where people seek safety, psychological safety. That must be, does that not concern you? Well, I think that there's um, a distinction here. You know, because there's safety. Let's say that you're part of a tribe and you want to feel safe within that tribe, which basically means that that people are holding space for you, for who you are. And so there needs to be a certain amount of safety. It's kind of like with a therapist, you want to feel safe. You know, in your environments, you want to feel a certain kind of 
acceptance, cultural diversity, anything where it's not about being pitted against one another. So I, I definitely approve of, you know, recognizing an acceptance of others, you know, and creating a safe space for that. Where I think there are issues, whether it's schools or corporations, is people holding on, you know, to dogma, people holding on to rules, people holding on, like there's not enough think tanks or the creative departments in most, you know, businesses are small. And we really need innovators. We really need daydreamers. We need, really need people who are constantly putting out ideas that are heard. Doesn't mean that they have to be accepted, but at least a space where the ideas are heard. You want to be able to throw out something and somebody go, let's think of something else. But you don't want, I wouldn't encourage that, you know, people are led through a leader who has to have his ideas, you know, demonstrated in the workplace. I really think that team building and encouraging the untapped potential in each, every individual. And part of the problem and the difference in the training that I do with people, part of the problem with training and billions of dollars are spent on training in, you know, in corporations and businesses, but they're not focused on the individual's paradigms. So there are no two people that are alike, Mark. And no two people have the same paradigms. You could have the same parent. You could be twins, but it doesn't mean that you don't have the same friends. It doesn't mean you have the same experiences. It doesn't mean you have the same emotional responses to anything that you've experienced in your life. And so everybody is being measured against, let's say, the successful person. Well, this person made it to the top because they did this, 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 and this. They pick a phone and they made their 30 phone calls a day. They did their cold calls, whatever. You know, and then we're being taught, people are being trained to compare themselves to the highly successful individual in the corporation. And if you look anywhere, it's usually 5% that are succeeding because they're not dealing with the individual's paradigm. And that paradigm is that individual's limiting beliefs, their programming, their conditioned environment, their circumstances. And they're not even aware that they're being held back by this programming on the subconscious level. So it's to bring it up to the conscious level because the conscious mind is really, the purpose of the conscious mind is to focus and choose, focus and choose. And everything else, 95% of our behavior, neuroscience is showing this more often, that 95% of our behavior is controlled by the subconscious mind. All the programming, the limiting beliefs, ancestral, generational programming, And that's why first generation, second generation, third generation welfare becomes fourth generation welfare. And it is fascinating when you talk about that because you just have to go onto any social media platform or any sort of site where you'll find uh, so-called influencers and experts guiding you with a five-step plan to do this or seven steps to this success. And when you start to look at peel back all, all this advice, the way you describe people as being individuals and you're setting yourself up for failure, but not the failure you need to be seeking, uh, the, the way you describe it, that it's um, identifying the inner self, the inner you, your true desires, your true dreams, your true set of beliefs are, are, are essential foundations to allowing you to take the actions you're going to, that you need to take to lead to the change that you need to 
to implement in your life to achieve the success you desire and go through the failures that are natural to you and unique to you. So I, now that I understand a bit more about this, this seeking failure, uh, and we'll get into more about the way that you guide your, your clients and, and help them um, uh, identify and unlock their imagination. I want you just to talk us through, if you're, if you're comfortable with this, the, the real pivot for you that set you on a completely different journey and down the path that you're on now. And, and I believe that it was the result of a deeply tragic event in your life where your husband died of lung cancer just around the time of your 25th um, wedding anniversary, and then a number of other associated tra- tragedies. Um, looking back at that now and doing what you do now, I mean, obviously the tragedy would, would spiral anyone out of control in, in their lives. Um, but what was it that allowed you to reach those depths of the despair you were clearly experiencing, but then have the, the realization and the recognition that there was another path for you? And rather than just go back and default to the old path, because that's often what people would have done. Well, I realized that, um, you know, I really became curious about why change was so complicated. And I had led my life as a, so-called good person, happy person. I never had Russian in my life. I was always helping people. I was, I always felt strong, but I wasn't really aware that my strength came from seeking approval outside of myself and that I was important if my students were doing well. I call that a false sense of power. So I realized that when I wasn't working with people who were doing well and I was just left with myself, I didn't feel as powerful, you know, so that there was a mask there. There was a mask of, you know, I've got it all figured out until I didn't have it figured out. It just all collapsed and fell apart. And, you know, losing the love of my life two months before my 25th wedding anniversary and he was diagnosed May 5th and gone three weeks later. So it wasn't like there was time to process or it was so sudden. And what I witnessed in, you know, my loved one at that, at that time was so un, unbearable that, um, I, I kind of had a psychotic break. And in that psychosis, you know, I realized, wow, you know, there's so much more to human psychology and beingness than I ever was aware of. And I always thought I was very aware because I was very intuitive and empathic, as you said, and I was very uh, insightful. I think my biggest talents really are those of perception, intuition, and insight. And the the one, my biggest wow factor is to give feedback. I can't shut up. You know, I, I just, if I see something in you, I'm going to, I have to speak it. I have to give feedback. And it's just because my antennae are picking up, you know, things that you can't see in, in you. So that I think one of my biggest talents, but I could also see that using that most of my life pushed me away from understanding highest level of change, of going through change and understanding that change is a painful process, which is why most people don't change. And how do you work with pain? I had no choice but to be in pain. 
And as you said, you know, I found um, my mother-in-law dead in her apartment a year after my husband's passing. My father died in front of me. My best friend died in front of me. And then my 40-year-old brother died jumping out of a plane and his parachute didn't open. And he was the instructor and the young man diving with him also died. And then my cat died. And I was just, you know, holding on to anything that was familiar, trying to hold on to anything that was familiar until I realized I had to let go, you know, and ironically or not so ironically, the last creative project that I did in the entertainment industry, I, I wrote a short film about a friend of mine passing of AIDS and the movie was called Letting Go. Ironic. Ironic. And then three months later, my husband was gone. Because you, you talked about the need to control people in the work that you did and having that power. And maybe, you know, the, maybe this was, um, as you say, you'd, you'd come to the recognition that you needed to change the path and you were going to do the directing and, and the teaching. <laughs> Who knows how the universe works? You're probably doing better than, than I do. But um, looking back on it, do you get a sense it was almost like a coalescing of incidents where it was the universe saying to you, you can control everything, you, you can try and control everything, you can't control death. And this multitude of deaths that occurred in your life was like a wake-up call, a, a recognition that it was time to move away from power and control um, to, and, to, and to change to a, a, different, a different direction and focus your energies elsewhere. It was quite like that. I think that like when I say about controlling other people, I was more about pulling out the best in people, you know, and, um, and it wasn't necessarily my version of what I thought was the best. It was what I saw in them as the best. So like I would work with every individual as the individual. So as a director, I was much more engaged in the energy of the individual Ah, and I directed them. I kind of go inside people and pull out performance. My, my biggest desire was always to help other people more than, you know, this idea of control. I think that. Okay. I, I see. I I get it now. So that's what I was struggling with to try and understand because, okay, so let me see if I get this right. So you, you were essentially through your creative outlet, through directing, um, and writing, seeing the abilities in people and bringing out the best performance and doing it through the lens of, um, plays. Um, film, stage, whatever. And the reality is that for what you've done is, and always looking to s- support the underdog, essentially all you've done is you've flipped uh, and taken that ability to see potential in people and to get the best out of them. And I'm doing it through a different lens now, which is yes. your coaching. Yeah. Is that fair? Yeah. Okay. Right. That, okay. Now I see the sort of the, um, the red thread between, between it all. Okay. So, for, so, when did that hit you, that, that way that, yeah. like I said, when you've gone through this depth of tragedy, what stopped you going back to that same path, going back to teaching, going back to directing, going back to writing, and then to, to focus more on helping people? Well, you know, I, I had an acting academy, and plus, um, you know, I had been the personal acting coach, the Olsen Twins, for 10 years. 
And it was interesting in that that contract, they were going off to university. And so that was ending. That relationship was ending. And then I had my acting academy where a lot of my young babies are doing very well in, in the business. But uh, I realized that I was in my grief. I was a dark entity. I had always been known as positive and helping and strong. And I was just really in a dark night and I was so depressed and I had never experienced depression, as I mentioned, that I didn't even open up the curtains to my living room for over a year. And I was really on a journey of meeting everybody on the other side. This was my biggest desire. So, um, communicating because the frustration is that when people cross to the other side, then all the physical senses are not available, right? So there's, you can't speak and hear and touch and feel and taste and, you know, and that's what I think we're here in our bodies to do. And when that was gone, you know, with all my loved ones, I thought, well, I want to just go meet them. So I really spent a few years in what was called a passive suicidal state. And I believe to this day that I had the opportunity to have those feelings and to go through that so that I have a better understanding of people who feel that when I work with them, you know, or anybody who has depression, I now understand it, or anybody who has loss, I now understand it. But the entertainment business was not a place that was going to soothe my grief. And so I was very protective of myself and pulled myself out because I was experiencing, I have a chapter in my book that says what not to say to a grieving widow. A lot of my friends at the time saying to me, you know, what people understand, Mark, is that grief alone is, you know, such a overwhelming physical state, emotional state, mental state. And then you're also dealing with everybody else's comments and their viewpoints and what they have to say to you. <laughs> You're trying to interpret, you know, life and, and then people's perceptions at the same time. And because I was somebody who was just always taking care of other people's feelings, you know, it was really a lesson for me to learn how to take care of my own feelings, you know, and that was something I needed to learn as well. And that I help now with a lot of my clients that we're not responsible for other people's feelings and nobody can make us feel anything. We're always at choice. And the biggest power that we have is to choose. But you must have awareness that that is a power you have, you know? And so but when you're stuck in your programming and your go-to or this is the way it has to be or this is the way I, I was taught it's to be, I would say my cage was rattled and I had to break up with almost every paradigm I had ever grown up with. You know, and, uh, but it, with the, and, and again, it's not that paradigms are bad. I don't want to make that, you know, a, a disclaimer as much as there are good paradigms and there are not so good paradigms. So I show people how to hold on to what's working for you, but let go of what isn't working for you because we'll continually defend our limitations in order to protect that safety zone, right? To be comfortable and safe, even if we're miserable. I say the ego mind would rather be right than happy. So there are a lot of miserable pe people out there trying to prove their viewpoint and it isn't working with them. So I often imagine myself 
as an 86 year old, you know, working with somebody who's defending their limitations and not getting the results they want. And my saying to them, yeah, how's that working for you? You know, when you, you talked about that period of depression, despair, you'd said that you lost the love of your life only to discover you didn't know how to love yourself. But why is it important to love yourself? I mean, it's a, of course, everyone goes, yeah, of course you should love yourself. Yeah. But could you maybe just explain that in a bit more detail and, and, and why it's foundational? Well, it goes back to that perfectionist piece as well. You know, I realized that, um, you know, my late husband and I were joined at the hip. We had been together since we were like 19. So a lot of where if I didn't feel understood in my life, he was the one who understood So a lot of my value came from his acceptance of me. And then when I didn't have that and I didn't have that intimacy of somebody understanding me that deeply, um, I realized that I was left on my own and then started to understand, well, not in the beginning. I mean, like the first year, like I said, I tried, I was passive suicidal and um, the voices inside my head, I never realized that I was a, I was, I always thought I was a positive person, but then I realized how negative I was toward myself. Right. And so that's the polar extreme. Be really, really positive for everybody else, but beat yourself up to, you know, to the core. And I work with so many people and even in my generation and younger generations. I mean, I think that there's a, a pandemic in the country. Yes. But there's one also called anxiety. And the anxiety levels in people and in our youth is, you know, it's become unmanageable for so many people. And. I think a lot of it has to do with that inner self-talk, that inner dialogue, that build, building that frequency in the body of not being enough, not being smart enough, not being good enough, not being enough, 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 and then continually looking in the mirror and saying, oh, I don't like this, I don't like that, instead of engaging in what is working. So most people, because we have the tendency to be negative, right? The brain is 85% wired for negativity. We have the tendency to focus on what isn't working. And why we do that is because when we're in the what isn't working, we feel a lot of pain. We feel the emotion. We feel the trauma. We feel, right? And that's a vibration. So feelings are vibrations. So a vibration, we don't go around saying, you know, how are you vibrating today? How are you feeling today? Right. And it's just a conscious choice to, you know, describe vibration when we use the word feeling. And so <laughs> when, when we feel yeah. a high mm-hmm. emotional negative response, it gets our attention. So we're not allowing ourselves to walk around in ecstasy and, you know, joy and happiness and, you know, where the, the label is your flower child or, you know, but really to embrace joy and happiness is what we're striving for. What most people say they want. It's not the thing they want. It's not the house they want. It's not the car they want. It's the feeling that it's going to give them. But because we're so tied to defending our misery, you know, it's because the, we feel that. And again, when I say we, it's a generality, right? It's the idea that we can't change our lives or that we can't do anything about it. So we accept and we just day in, day out, keep repeating the pattern. You know, and as I like to say, our personality our, is our personal reality, which is based on 
all of our habits and our behaviors and our thinking patterns. So when you really dive into what is working, that's when you can start to love yourself and start to see that. I mean, I now think about I have the walls of my house because I'm just so in awe of the people who built it. I'm so in awe of what it took for the lumber to get to, you know, North Hollywood. I'm so in awe of the truck drivers who get, you know, the merchandise to places and to stores. I'm in awe of, you know, nature and what it takes for the systems and the ecosystem. I'm in awe that there's blood running through my veins and that I have awareness of it. I'm in awe, you know, of what it takes for the mechanism and for even like, even this, I, I think back to that sandbox and building those cities, you know, I just never had the awareness that I have now of what it takes to put a pipe in a house and for plumbing to work and for electricity. You know, there's just so much that it takes in order for all the pieces to fit together. And yet there's just a whole lot of misery. And I think it starts with, Wake up to what is working, what is available, you know, and it starts again, that self-love piece. Parents, even with parenting, are teaching their children through high emotional states. They didn't read their book. They didn't do their homework. They didn't do their chores. They did. And those high emotional states, you know, create within low self-esteem, low self-confidence. I'm not enough. It's not good enough. We don't have parenting or parent, and there are parents who do this saying, you read your book. I love you so much. Oh my gosh. If we had more of those emotional responses, we would build more in that frequency, you know, of things are, are wonderful. Things are working and that when you have contrast, when you have the lower frequency, when you have the pain, it's just trying to get your attention to say, you need to focus differently. You need to focus in the opposite direction. There's two things there. I mean, this I mean, this is like a therapy session for me. Um, you <laughs> talked about 85% of, um, uh, of the brains wired for negative, was it negative? voices and negativity yeah yeah everyone has you, you, the way you describe that the way parents speak to their kids and it, it gets you sort of this inner voice of negativity oh i i must do this or i should have done that and that's all that those sort of words at the same time you there's an element of we're all desiring you know I, we all have a desire to be something that we're currently not we're all on a journey of transition to some some degree so as a success, transformative success coach, how do you get people to quell that negative voice? And how do you um, help them identify the change that needs to happen in them to be able to fail faster and fail more willingly without fear and see it as a path to the success to, to unlock the, the, real, the, the real person that they are? But I also do want to ask you as well, if you had gone through and the recognition that you went through after the tragedy earlier in your life and you had been and identified your, your true self and that the, the, the you're able to love yourself the way you do now and all the things that you know now, would you have lived a different life earlier? Maybe we can come on to that. 
that's, that's a great question. So let me just address uh, your first question in the way that I work with people. There are two ways that we change. And one is through a traumatic event, which is what happened to me. I had no choice, right? Everything capsized. It can also be in a static event, you know, a wedding, you're married, a divorce. whatever. <laughs> right, a divorce. <laughs> that might be in a static event or not. And, you know, and, or if it's an, an accident or like, you know, twin towers. But there are also ecstatic events that can help you change your life dramatically as well. And then the other way is through constant space repetition of a new idea so that you plant a new desire and you build it through images and you build it through emotion and you build it through repetition, 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 repetition until subconscious mind starts to own it and accept it as the new truth. So the way that I like to work with people is we start out with going after the dream, the dream that's buried inside. And a way that we do that to discover that it's just to have an honest conversation about fantasy. You know, to fantasize and what is it that you really, really, really want and to allow yourself to take some time and write down all your wants in life and write down all your desires, and write down all your fantasies. And then to really look at which one do you really, really want, and which one scares the pants off of you. So, you know, if you say you want to write a book, it it has maybe some desire to it, you know, but why are you not doing it? An example, so what, what we go after is the stretch goal, that you don't know how to do. And it's really important that you don't know how to do it. Because as soon as you've got it figured out, the intellect, the logical mind takes over and all, you know, your prefrontal cortex starts to kick in to all the reasons why not. Instead of, you know, the gut response and the gut desire. So for example, I worked with a financial planner in his fifties, miserable at work, miserable. Um, and, and discovered that what he really wanted his whole life was to be in a band. So at 55, somebody's going to say it's too late. But it's like, if there's music in your body and the music needs to be expressed, now let's find a way to express it. And so through a series of challenges and setting some goal lines, let's start with a song that you're going to rehearse because let's say this person was a guitar player going to rehearse this song to play at your niece's wedding. So you've got three months to do that. How does that feel? That feels exciting. How else does that feel? It scares the pants off of me. Okay. Those are the two ingredients. Are you willing to do it? And are you able? Yes. Okay. So let's aim for that. And then as soon as you start aiming for that outside the comfort zone and really being honest with the desire, that's when the magic starts to happen. And that's when the universe starts to conspire to bring to you the unimaginable. So like with your impossible network, it's not impossible. It's I'm possible, right? And so what happened like with this man, for example, week two out after making a decision, he's out walking his dog in a park and somebody comes up to him in the park and says, hey, would you like to come and jam with us tonight at the local bar? And he's like, what are you talking about? He said, well, you look like a musician. He said, what are you talking about? And then he said, yeah, I play guitar. He didn't even know that the guy played guitar. So then that guy ended up on stage 
jamming, feeling really good. Three weeks later, he's got a second gig. Four weeks later, he's got a paid gig. Five weeks later, you know, he's putting together a band. Six weeks later, he wants to have a number one hit. Why not, right? Now, it's not the attainment of the desire as much as who are you becoming as you move toward it. And as that started to happen for him, his workplace started to change. He started to love his work again. Things start, his boss was listening to him differently. He was having more time. He was having more fun with his fam. All kinds of things start to change based on where you're focused. But if you keep focused on, again, the misery and I can't do it, you're not going to create the more. Mm. Do you think, um, I mean, goal setting, I mean, we just passed, uh, well, we're in February already, uh, time stamping this. You know, we just passed that uh, time of year when everyone has their resolutions and they set their new goals for the year and all that sort of thing. And we know so much is written about it. And, you know, whether you're in a company or you're an individual, an entrepreneur or a freelancer, everyone, you read a lot about smart goals, about realistic, achievable. But it sounds to me, and I've always believed this from my early days when I was a runner, you've got to set big, hairy, audacious goals, things that are just beyond what you can imagine um, as being possible just now. Going back to the impossible network is about people that believe what is impossible is possible. And it just takes time, yeah. attention, detail, and imagination and whatever. But you, 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 the way you're describing this is that core to when you're actually sitting with your, um, with your clients is, do you have to keep pushing them to the point to get to the, really to the, the, um, that nugget that, which might be buried deep inside them. There's something that, that the, what is the, cause some people will probably obviously on the, on the surface level come out with a, um, a goal uh, and say what's their dream, but it's maybe not that audacious. It's maybe not that big. How do you know when you've got them to the point and they've really defined something that is truly, um, dreamlike, I suppose? You know, I think that, um, People don't have such a problem identifying the dream as much as why they're not doing the dream. And I, I definitely agree, you know, with, like, I, I always say smart goals are not that smart. You know, um, that yes, go for the big, hairy, audacious goal and then use smart goals to get you there, right? Because the smart goals are just what I call milestones. Right. And that you want to be able to say, well, I'm aiming in this direction. So it's kind of like a torpedo that aims for its target and nothing's going to get in its way. And if it's, you know, there's the current that pulls it off, but it gets back on track. Right. It's a psycho-cybernetic system that we all have. And, you know, or even if there's a coral reef in its way, it's going to go through it. It's going to find a hole. It's going to go over it. It's just going to find a way to get there. Right. So it's really about if you're so focused on the big, hairy, audacious goal, the, the conscious mind goes into overwhelm. And remember, the focus of the conscious mind is focus and choose. So it's to have the awareness of this is the aim, but then to break it down into what I call a three foot toss. So if you're going to play horseshoes, right, for the first time and your goal is 20, the aim is 20 feet away, 
what are the chances you're going to hit the post your first time out? Not likely. So pull that post three feet in front of you, and that's an aim, right? And then you're more likely to hit it. And when you hit that, you feel confident, you feel more success, and then you keep repeating it until you get bored, and then you're in that conscious competence phase, and then you become unconsciously competent. You could hit that post with your eyes closed, and then you decide that you got to you got to push out now. You got to push out again. And so it's to hit those milestones or to design those milestones and to have a sense of designing your life, right? That you're aiming in a direction and you break it down so that you do design it and that you're hitting your targets or you're finding a way, you know, what usually happens is that things start to come to you and it's whether or not you're going to say yes, because some of those things that come to you are what I call the unimaginable. So when I ask people what their dream is, a lot of people will say, I want to write a book, but that's not a hairy, audacious goal. So it's like one woman who was a 72-year-old coach, she wanted to write a book and she had been writing for 25 years. And I just said, that's not a hairy, audacious goal. It's not a stretch goal because you know how to write, but you're not doing it. So let's design it. Then in three months time, you're going to invite 20 of your closest friends to your living room to hear you read your first draft. And she gulped and she panicked, you know, and then I said, how does that sound? She says, I'm in. Okay, that's great. And then I said, but it's still not defined yet until you send out the invitations. So when are you sending out the invitations? It was a Wednesday. She sent out the invitations on the Monday and, you know, took a big, deep breath. And then she got herself in her chair every day writing for two to three hours a day, which she wasn't doing before, but she kept saying she wanted to write a book. And I was in her living room three months later where she read the first draft of her book. Same with, you know, wanting to lose weight. I want to lose weight. I want to lose weight. I want to lose weight. What I do is I just probe a little bit. And she said she wanted to lose weight. I was like, you know how to lose weight. You know how to hire a trainer. You know how to walk. You know how to run. You know how to eat well. So let's find out what's going to motivate you. And I just probed a little bit and found out that she really admired an 86-year-old bodybuilder. Ernestine Shepherds, I believe her name is. I said, how about signing up for a bodybuilding competition? Now she's 72 years old and she said, all right, let's do it. So she signed and I said, but it's still not that hairy audacious goal until you find the competition, you know the date and you pay for it. Once she signed up, once she paid for it, once she bought her pink fuchsia bikini and her tanning spray, she was at the gym at five o'clock every morning and she could hold a plank longer than her trainer. Now, again, it's not about, and she ended up not doing the competition because she got sick with a flu before the competition and couldn't compete. But did she lose the weight? Yes. Did she build body strength? Yes. It's about who you're becoming. It's not necessarily the acquisition, but it's being pulled up so that you use something that excites you and you commit to. But then that's also where, Mark, accountability is so important. Somebody holding you accountable. You know, and I've got people holding me accountable, but if they're a friend, I don't do it. If I pay somebody, I do it. You know, it's as if somebody is really going to hold me accountable, I've got to get my skin in the game. And it's, you've got to understand. And look, there are people who don't want to be entrepreneurs. There are people who want 
their nine to five jobs. There are people who are happy in the comfort zone and in, you know, and they'll be okay with mediocrity. There's nothing wrong with that if you're happy. I spend a lot of time with technology and, and, mm. and it feels to me that, that essentially what you're doing is you're reprogramming people's brains or you're reprogramming their lives and you're using a design thinking methodology yes. to create change. And I'm going to go back and you use that word and it's in your book, True Love, True Self, that we're all vibrant, vibrational beings. And I suppose, I'm, and I get, again, I'm, I'm asking these questions because I'm trying to get in my own head. There's a, there's a, there's a bit of code here as to how to affect change. And, you know, I'm doing this podcast because it's an experiment in change in my own life in a way. And all the people that I'm connecting with is that there's a, there seems to be a bit of a formula here. And a, and a bit of code that can be applied that's universal. That if you can identify those big, those dreams, those goals, and you can unlock the uh, inside to someone the, the belief that it is possible to achieve that, even if it's a big, hairy, audacious goal, the vibrational being that you are, it changes from being negative to more positive. And that those, you said that 85%, I suspect that when you start to see that change of being implemented by these clients, whether it be the musician, the guy that wanted to be a musician, the woman, the bodybuilder, their vibrations are more positive rather than negative. And therefore they feel better in themselves. And therefore they probably are attracting the type of people and the situations and the scenarios that take them closer. To, as you say, these encounters that occur that would otherwise have been unimaginable. Mm-hmm. And if that is a sort of a, a, you know, part of that code. So if people are, you know, if, if people are listening to this and they, they want to make that change, do people have to find a coach to be able to take that step? If people desire a change like you did, because I know you went, you had Bob Proctor, who's an amazing sort of a sadly passed now. One of the great coaches um, that's ever lived. You had someone, him as your coach, your mentor. Um, do people have to seek out a coach to to make these life transformative changes in their lives? No, they don't have to do that at all. But it helps. <laughs> you know, it's really you know there are people who are seekers who read a lot of books, right? But then there are people like I work with PhDs who don't have jobs because they're not in application. They've got all the material at the conscious level, right? And it's it's storage, but they're not applying it into the body. So there's like three parts of our personality. So there's the intellectual, there's the spiritual, and there's the physical. And a lot of people will either focus on like the physical. I'm going to, you know, become healthy and fit and strong. And then they become, you know, obsessed with that part of their lives. Or there are people who are so focused on spiritual that they, they're not making a lot of money, you know, because all their emphasis is, you know, on, on just connecting on a spiritual level. And then there's people who are, like I said, with PhDs or people stuck in the conscious mind or just in the intellectual mind and not integrating the, the other parts. So the holistic viewpoint really is to combine the spiritual, the intellectual and the physical. And that there are three ways that we really feed ourselves. And one is through our thoughts and our thinking. The other one is through our environment and who we're hanging out with and what we breathe. And the other one is what we eat, you know, the foods we put into our body. 
And so all that is going to create, you know, uh, what shows up in our physical state, emotional state, and our mental state. And understand that they have to work together. All three work together. And then as far as raising consciousness, raising our own consciousness, there are people who can do it with their friend based on the friends they hang out with. But I work with so many people who are hanging out with a lot of so-called negative Nellies and David Downer. So what I recommend is start hanging out with people who are going to raise your consciousness because a, a lot of what's going on is people are trying to change their lives with the mind they already have. You cannot change your life with the mind you already have. Your mind is a programmed state. The higher part of us is the imagination, is that part of us that taps into something greater than ourselves. So when we have like the conversation you and I are having, or, you know, that's the opportunity for you to change my thinking or for you to impact my thinking or vice versa, or we go and listen to somebody who really triggers something in us, you know, or inspires something in us, or we go to an event or we go on a vacation and we see a different culture. It's all about increasing awareness and the more awareness that we have, right? That, and again, it's not all about money and success. It's what is success. I mean, I work with people who are millionaires, multimillionaires who don't feel successful. And why is that? They've not acknowledged themselves along the way because they just keep chasing the pot at the end of the rainbow. And if you just keep chasing that pot without pausing, you know, to feel your success, to acknowledge yourself and your worth, to own, you know, these feelings of happiness, these are all vibrational states and vibrational frequencies. And that when you're in a higher state of positivity, you know, it's what you focus on expands. The more good you look for, the more good you will see. The people, I, I was working with a therapist. I work with a lot of therapists. And I said to her, I want you to examine your environment and all the negative Nellies and David Downers in your environment and, you know, and report to me, you know, who they are and who you're hanging out with. And she said, you know, Barbara, my daughter's very positive. My brother's very positive. My friends are very positive. She says, I'm the negative Nellie. And it's like, okay, so now we, we've got exercises, we've got tools, we've got processes, we've got all of these ways to start shifting the focus and shift the frequency and shift, you know, where again, you're not owning somebody else's feelings. You know, you're really a hundred percent responsible, responsible for the choices that you're, you're making, but it takes awareness to do that. And some of these, like the processes, you're not going to get processes from your parents and your friends, and you're not going to get exercises. We've been taught in school to be pulled up because we've got exams, right? Or we've got teachers. And so we're in this whole programming, but we're in a comparative programming most of our lives. Get measured next to, get measured next to, get measured next to. And then, you know, we're in college and then we go to work. And when we're at work, we have measurements as well, you know. And so we're always being maybe pulled up by those people or our leaders or or we, you know, go, go in the opposite direction and are miserable. Or, you know, if we are an entrepreneur, as an entrepreneur, how is it that 
You have your teachers measuring you or your boss or your leaders. You've got yourself. How do you motivate yourself? You know, and unless you know what your drivers are, unless you know what really motivates you, um, it's a challenge. You studied um, neuroscience, which I think is fascinating that you're, you know, someone that does what you do and you've got this now knowledge of neuroscience and how the brain works that you apply in your practice to help people focus on what you call their future memory, which is an unusual term to get your head around, um, and not focus on the self-limiting past memories or self-limiting beliefs. Um, I'd love you just to talk about the importance of neuroscience, because I, you know, I was talking to a couple of people yesterday about the importance of the default mode network. And the reason I was talking about it is that we have to get to a point where we can un- sit and daydream and use our imaginations and I'll open our minds to whatever comes to us from the universe rather than being distracted by screens and phones and all the, the streams that feed us on daily through all the digital devices we're connected to. So that's a slight distraction, but so I'd love you to just talk about explain this future memory and how you go about helping people using neuroscience to help them create these future memories and to change, flip the script in their lives. Yeah. And you know, the thing with neuroscience, and it's just fascinating what we're discovering. It's just really wonderful. We've got neural pathways and these neural pathways are locked into grooves. And so if we keep doing the same thing over and over and over again, that groove just gets deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper and more committed to what it already knows. And so to change, you know, and to create new neural pathways and new networks, it does involve, you know, your imagination and it does involve daydreaming and it does involve deeply listening and, and, and not just having a limited viewpoint. When somebody, the subconscious mind interprets language into pictures and pictures create emotion. So that's why we're very visual beings, right? So that's why media uses imagery to sell. And we don't buy from our thinking mind. There is a percentage that does buy from their thinking mind, but it's about 15%. The other 85% are buying from their emotional mind. So we're always you know, responding or reacting, you know, from our emotional place, which is what is called our program, what we already know. And so to break up with that is really designing, again, a new idea, a new thought, or taking even a visual, an image and go into a future memory. So most people are spending 97% of their day just, just rewiring past memories over and over and over, pictures of, you know, things they did in the past. More often than not, it's great when you're focusing on, you know, images of success or times that you felt happy or you felt joy or, you know, the good times. But more, most people are focused on their mistakes, their regrets, what they didn't do right. Knowing what I know now, like in your previous question, would my life have been different? Had I had mentors teaching me what it took to be an actor in this world, you know, a storyteller in this world, I would have been a phenomenal performer and storyteller, right? But I didn't have the coaching or the direction or the mentorship or the people that guided me in how to work with my emotional states. I didn't have that, you know, um, support system, let's say. And I think the support system is very, very important. So 
in neuroscience. And they've shown there's a study at UC San Diego where they did, they hooked up a lot of people to electrodes and asked them to think creative thoughts and then also asked them to think negative thoughts. And they showed in the, um, the scan images that the positive thinking created new synapses and new neural networks. The negative thoughts actually exploded the neural synapses. So there was like explosion of, you know, neural dynamics going on. So it's really about growing the brain, growing the networks, having a growth mindset and evolving it through frequencies that are more positive, healthy, regenerative. We're not going to regenerate our health if we don't believe we're going to be well. We're not going to do the work it takes to get better. We're not going to, it's all in, again, the support systems. And they're just showing like a future memory is take a picture of something you want to have in your life, whether it's a trip to Bora Bora or whether you want, you know, to bring your family on a vacation or whether or not you want to go to Disney World, whatever it is. And you take that future memory and dream about that every day instead of dreaming about what isn't working and the past that no longer is serving you. So that's where, because the conscious mind doesn't know the difference between past, present, or future. It only knows now. So in the now, and then we could talk about all this goal setting and, you know, bringing success principles and spiritual principles and universal laws together. But ultimately, it, I believe it's really about how do you engage in the present moment to its fullest? Do you think that, is that why affirmations are important? Absolutely. Because you know what? You're, we're affirming all day long. If we're, if we're speaking a negative thought, it's an affirmation. When we say, you know, I can't do that, that's an affirmation. Or I think somebody, I can't remember who it is, calls it non-formation or something like that. But it's, it's really that we're af- affirmations don't work if you are just by rote. Just like reading a book once is not going to change your life. It's through the repetition of the idea over and over. I'm, I'm reading books, you know, 20, 25 times and I'm still going like, whoa, I didn't get that, you know, the last time I read it. Oh, whoa, I didn't get that. But because I'm at a different level of awareness every time I come to it and affirmations really need the emotional feeling state to get it into the emotional mind, the subconscious mind. And through the repetition of that, that's when you start to, I call it acting as if you start to, you have to pretend. It's funny, you talked about the intellectual, spiritual, and physical, and it is the same. You know, why do I go to the gym every day? Because I just know if I only do it a couple of times a week, it doesn't have the same impact of the repetition of going every day, of doing the the boring leg lifts or whatever the exercises I'm doing to work on a particular part of my body. It does take repetition. And the mind and the spirit, and I suppose in the brain, it's, it's it's the same thing. It is a, it is interesting. You mentioned cyber, cybernetics. And I remember someone giving me a book years ago called, was it Maxwell? Maxwell, someone? 
Maxwell Mark, Psycho Saber. Yeah, yeah, by Maxwell. A lot of people back yeah. then thought it was all woo-woo, all this nonsense. But really, as you're what you're doing, you've created a bridge between what people used to say is woo-woo and all this sort of, um, oh, yeah, goal-setting, power-positive thinking, all that sort of thing. Yeah, Napoleon Hill, um, um, Tony, yeah. Tony, um, what's his name? Robin. Robins and all that. But it's actually, it's not, it isn't, they can, you can't say woo-woo now because it is its neuroscience. It's understanding how the brain works and the difference between the conscious mind, the subconscious mind and taking control of thoughts. It's funny. That's yesterday funny. I had someone call me telling me about an interview they'd done and saying, Oh, they asked me all these questions that were not what I'd expected. And I'm not very good at thinking on my feet. And I thought, well, if you say that, you're never going to be able to think on your feet because you, that's, as you said, that's an affirmation that's of, right. a, of a negative thought that's just that's it's right. creating a scripted behavior that will only repeat itself. So you have to break that scripted behavior and change it. That's and right. you're giving, that's and right. so you're giving people almost the, this, going back to my, my analogy to design thinking, you're giving them a design system for redesigning their lives. That's right. Yeah, I'm a brain geek too. You know, it's like, I like to break things down and I could not, even like with this woo-woo concept, have faith in any of it unless I understood the science of it. Is what led me to break down, you know, quantum physics and nanu and quarks and to understand vibration and frequency because everything is vibration. Everything is energy. Everything is. See, we're so stuck on a Newtonian physics paradigm. You know, and Newtonian physics is really all about you change things through pills or me mechanisms, right? But what Newtonian physics doesn't take into consideration is the invisible side of success. And the invisible side is energy. Go back to your vibrations. Yeah. And if you look even in our modern medicine, it's really lacking. It's about 17 years behind what's really taking place you know, in awareness around health and around energy. And, you know, I was talking to somebody the other day who was um, diagnosed with cancer and they saw an oncologist, a new, an oncologist um, nutritionist. And the advice that the nutritional advice that they got from the oncologist was unbelievable to me, like unbelievably poor. And because they didn't have the education or the awareness around nutrition yet they're saying to this person that go ahead eat eat sugar it's okay but i know i know different you know i just know different resources that's just not being shared i mean you t again to go back to something you said that resonated the thoughts the environment and the th things we eat the environments we spend our time in the people we spend our time with and the thoughts that we actually manufacture so we can take control by creating uh daily habits of positive affirmations control starting to control the thoughts that we have we can we can set and identify those people of good energy versus bad energy or some other boss that used to have called um drains uh, versus radiators. So spend your time with radiators and not drains and put yourself in healthy environments and eat well. When you put all those things together, I suppose those would be the foundational elements of actually starting to live a more intentional life and to help you. Would you say that is 
helping you achieve pathway to creating what you called in your book, the true, true love, true self on, on putting yourself on a journey to self love. If you take control of those three things, thoughts, environments, and your eating behaviors, are, the, are those the foundational elements? Yes, I would say those are the foundational elements along with listening, right? So that after the loss of my husband, I would say that I've been mostly guided by signs, messages, allow, not stressing to putting a, you know, a round peg into a square hole, that control piece that, I, you know, that I was navigating through the earlier part of my life and not being as hard on myself so that if things aren't going as I think they should be going, that I allow myself to redirect or distract or I always say shift your energy, shift your energy, shift your energy or to soften that if something feels painful to know and have awareness that that's a good thing. So I tell my clients all the time, they start to aim in the direction of their dream and amazing magical things start to show up. And then the paradigms start to rush in, which means everything that can stop them from having their dream is going to show up. It's kind of crazy when you see it. It's like about, I have this program that's 12 weeks long and about week four, week five, I'm very busy because people are going, What's going on? You know, things are out of control. And, you know, and I say to people, you know, cry through your tears and say, oh, goody, 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 change is happening. You know, change is happening. So even for myself, when I'm in that state of contrast, I know that the contrast is to say, you need to focus on a, a different direction or you need to navigate, you know, and be kinder to yourself. And then when I'm in a more self-loving place, that's the where the creativity can come in. You quoted Bob Proctor, and he said something about most people go through life tiptoeing, tiptoeing through life to death without ever discovering safe. Yeah, safely, safely tiptoeing. Yeah, to death. So their is dreams it the case? Because I can see, I know plenty of people, and I spent years in advertising tiptoeing towards death. Sometimes almost self-inflicted through the dangerous situations I get myself in, but not really thinking about anything, just day by day, groundhog day. And and, and that's what it felt like. <clears throat> yeah. But now that I've got a clear goal, ambition with what I'm doing with this podcast, it's almost like, all right, there's no going back because now I'm, now I'm aware. It's like the curtains have been pulled back. Right. And it's every day you need to right. be, it's a practice. Right. So going back to the analogy of the gym or the code, right. the code's been set. So yeah. is it something that when you, you speak with your clients yes. that you set them on a path and that's them, they, they, or do, how do you keep ensure that they don't drift back into tiptoeing? Well, you know, I never expected this, but when I first started um, doing the program, it's called Thinking Into Result. And when I first started doing it, I thought people would do the program and then they'd go off on their own. And they started calling me three months after the program saying, I want to do the program again. Now I have clients I've never expected that have repeated the same program with me for 10 years. And it's not that the program has changed. It's that they have changed. So every time they come back and they repeat the program, I hear everybody say this. I don't remember this, Barbara. I don't remember this. And it's like, well, you don't remember it because you're a new version of you. And your awareness level is at a different level. 
and you, and they just kept coming back and coming back. And so when's the next group? When's the next time? Because I've got a new goal. I've got my, the next level, the next level, the next level. So yes, it's a never ending journey. Once you become aware, you know, it's just like with exercise. It's the same thing. It's just like with the foods you eat. It's the same thing that otherwise you're going to go on autopilot. Lack of awareness is autopilot where the brain just, you know, it's that groundhog day. It's just going to go right back to what it knows, what it knows, what it knows, what it knows. Going to be in the safety zone. And then one day, I, I like to say to people, you know, if you're on your deathbed, what's the one thing you'll regret not doing? And most people are not even thinking about that because they're just, they're just getting there and getting there and getting there and getting there. And then one day they're on their deathbed and they're saying, I wish I had climbed more mountains. I wish I had, you know, walks more beaches. I wish I had. And that's because they've been on autopilot. And, you know, unfortunately for me or fortunately, you know, the ground was shaken, you know, underneath my feet with all the losses that I had, but it propelled me into awareness. And that awareness is, yes, you have to, again, back to your gym analogy, you have to keep up the process. I just said to myself today, I'm maybe I'm going to eat smaller lunches or maybe not eat so much at lunch because I'm tired after lunch. Or I'm going to have less carbs because I'm really feeling a big drop in my energy. So that consciousness and that awareness, now it's up to me to do something about it. Otherwise, autopilot's going to take over and I'll go right back to what I, you know, the lunch that I had, you know, the day before and the one that I had last week on that same day. You know, my Monday, I eat this. My Tuesday, I eat this. My Wednesday, I eat this. And then I, you know, want to take a nap because... I'm not being conscious. I wanted to ask you about your natural gifts. And you mentioned earlier about, I think you said perception, intuition and feedback. And clearly those were natural gifts that were being applied when you were directing. Um, yes. Do you think those are the same natural gifts that are manifesting now and helping you be such a s- successful coach with people and being I mean, I interview people called storytellers, difference makers, domain experts. You happen to be all three because you're a great storyteller. You're, you're clearly making a difference in people's lives and you're a domain expert in this area. So are there, are there, are those your natural gifts, the ones you mentioned earlier? And are they manifesting themselves in the same way now in the role that you're playing in life? Yeah. I would say that uh, I have an uncanny, um, eye for, the bizarre. <laughs> and, and that is, I see things that most, a lot of people don't see. I think a lot of that had to do with my directing over the years and my training to look for, you know, the subtle details. But I can pick out really bizarre things in people. I can see very bizarre things. And I'll, I have attention to detail. My sister has that gift as well. And we just see things that it just runs by everybody. So I, I love using that part of me and I love using that feedback because I really feel a lot and, um, and to be able to interpret my feelings as feedback for people. And I always check in. Does this feel accurate or not? How do you continue to manage, which must exist at some point? The negative voice doesn't go away. How do you, 
how do you manage the fragility doubt and the negative voice? You're absolutely right. It never goes away, you know, but again, it's the opportunity to shift perspective and it's in the law of opposites, right? The law of polarity, right? For every up, there's a down. For every in, there's an out. For every happy, there's a sad. So I have a different appreciation for if I feel sadness. I don't have it control my entire day um, because I understand it's necessary and that it's, it's ebb and flow. It's the tides. It's the, you, you know, it's kind of like if you're seeking and you go out on a boat and you know you're going to hit land and your destination or you're aiming for the land, but there's going to be some rocky waters and there's going to be, you know, no wind and there's going to be days where the sun is just glorious, right? And everything is just moving and sailing perfectly. And then there's other days that it's really to find the resources inside of you to navigate. So I've got now all these tools that I didn't have when I lost my husband and was very depressed. I have a toolbox. I have exercises. I have perspective. I have understanding. I have awareness. That's taken a lot of years of growing and growing and aiming and focusing on, on, on growing, you know, and it's not without, you know, sometimes I go, you know, do I want to do this anymore? It's not without days that I say, I just don't feel like it today. You mentioned the, the, the medical profession being 17 years behind. Um, I hate to think where the education system is um, compared to the knowledge we have today. I interviewed another guest a while ago, and I'm going to have her on again, Julia um, Black, who's a, a leader in innovation and education system reform in the UK. And she's got a program called Lights On, where she turns the lights on children's minds by getting into what she calls identifying their heart. Love that. Self, their uh, minds, un to unlock their mind self, to unlock their soul self. And by doing that, really you're getting to the heart of that individual's. As you said at the start about food, everyone's different. No one's the same. And that's what she unlocks through people, mainly helped by working with mothers to do it. Do you think that if you're, that what you do, um, you must reflect on education, think there needs to be some sort of wholesale reimagine of our education system and how we nurture children. Because if you started to do what you do at scale with children at a young age, the impact it could have, the exponential impact on society in a world where we're in, everyone's running almost like headless chickens around the, the threat of AI and chat GPT. And then Google just launched um, their um, BARD program, which is their version of it. Surely you've, what you're doing needs to be something that's embraced by policymakers um, to start to take action in schools to help children, because that's, that's where we're going to address the big problems we have in life. Because what is, isn't, this isn't just, a, I don't think about, unlocking individuals' dreams. We need problem solvers in life. We need action takers, people that can actually address the big gnarly problems that we're facing. Mm -hmm. And those problems become people's big, hairy, audacious goals mm -hmm. and ambitions. So I, I don't know, how do we go about getting the narrative that you're and, and the tools that you use not being embraced just by 
individuals, but by systems? Well, I think that's a great question. And I love, you know, what this woman is um, doing. You said light, light up. Lights up, lights on. Lights on. I think that's just. Yeah. I maybe, I maybe need to connect you with her because what I'm part of doing with this podcast is looking at how can I create yeah. connections yeah. where they wouldn't otherwise exist. Because I think the two, your two minds yeah. together and knowledge could create, um, impact. Absolutely. Um, and I, you know, I was just reflecting on this today. The educational system is complex. And I mean, there are schools out there like Montessori schools, Walden different approaches, you know, crossroads. And the emphasis is a lot more on the creative mind. Unfortunately, you know, the first thing to go in most of our school systems is the, you know, the arts, right? Drama, creative writing, all of that. And it's so important that we continue because these are, these are ways, you know, to develop the individual it's not about making somebody an artist or making somebody actor or, you know, a musician. Um, math is also very creative. You know, it's the stimulation and, you know, in recognizing creativity. I know I uh, was in San Francisco teaching 25 drama classes a week. I would go into a school system. I would spend 10 weeks and I would have the entire class write their own play. So everybody had a character that they designed themselves. And within 10 weeks, we performed with costume and sets and all these little individual characters that the individual, you know, added to the the fabric of the story. There was one of me, you know, I was a California Arts Council artist in residence. There was just one of me doing this. And there were other people also, you know, making this effort that I probably didn't know of. But it's, it's going to take a village. It's not, you know, it's really going to take a village of people understanding the importance. And I love that she's starting with the parents and the parent understanding because there are parents who are homeschooling and because they want their child not to be a victim of the school system. But even those parents who are homeschooling are stressed and trying to navigate all the pressures, you know, and all the expectations. And I was just looking at a, a young kid the other day with this big backpack of books that was hanging down to, you know, below her, you know, coccyx. And a guy was going like, oh my gosh, how is that child even carrying all of those books, right? And her, the expectations are intense and the allowance of expression, it's, it's really something that needs to be tackled you know do i have the answer no it's got to start like if i could bring my program into the schools a lot of parents who take my program want to hire me to work with their kids to you know to take the program but it's not just goal setting no it's i think it is it's you're taking the neuroscience the knowledge you have of neuroscience and using tools and design thinking to help people become essentially their true selves. Absolutely. And I think that there really needs to be, uh, how do you teach compassion, you know? And, but compassion toward oneself is where it begins, I believe. Well, if you don't have that, and as you say, the getting that true love, you're going to end up with a, a voice which is continually beating yourself up and being negative. Yes. Reinforcing, yes. going back to what you said about the parents' uh, script. So it isn't it, why Julia's right. It is, it, if you don't actually start to put in 
the mind of parents, the, the importance of what they say and their words and the That's thoughts, right. the, the feelings they're creating, right. then, you know, that it's, so, so it can't be done in isolation. No. So, it's okay. Pro- programming, well, that, programming, right? Absolutely. So I, if you're open to it, I will make the connection yeah, to you and great. Julia. Cause I think, and I would l- love to be part of that, that conversation when we get you on a, on a, on a Zoom call together. Um, so part of this, um, these serendipitous connections I'm trying to create are important calling engineering random collisions. They're not really random because we're actually planning them and, and starting to match and go, well, if we got together Julia and Barbara together and UK and the US and wow, what could we actually concoct? Um, you know, I, that's what I want to do to try and accelerate some form of impact and change, positive change in the world. But I was reading something the other day about um, what's called reciprocity rings uh, from an island in the South Pacific. So essentially, I thought, oh, that's really interesting. That's really what I'm trying to do is create reciprocity rings. So in the spirit of reciprocity, what is your ask to the network, um, the impossible network, to other guests, if there's something you would like to ask that you would want support with, help with, or anything, and we'll put it out there. That's a great question. Um, yeah, it's it's you know, I, I'm off on this thought about what's become really important to me is to stay out of judgment. When we judge, and this goes back to the compassion piece, when we judge, we're really judging ourselves, right? You spot it, you got it. So if you're pointing in the direction, you know, where are these three fingers pointing, right? If you, if you spot it, you got it. And for me, I've really worked a lot in my life and with my clients on um, to feel freedom within yourself. One of the biggest ways to achieve it is to stop judgment, you know, and it starts with when you judge others, that's pointing you in the direction of where you're judging yourself. When you can identify that, that's going to open up a pathway to releasing, you know, that perfectionism that we started talking about at the beginning. Uh, one of my, my biggest challenges in life has always been asking for help from others, right? It's like, I've been so good at giving help. And then in my, my losses, that's where I learned to receive help. I didn't ask for it. I had to learn to receive it. And I do say to people, and one of the processes that I ask people is ask for what you want. Practice asking. You might not get it, but practice asking because that's where the magic is, right? So in terms of like your guests and what my ask would be is to, you know, feel free to reach out and connect and to align if it feels in alignment, you know, with, um, Growing the impact and growing the message and, uh, and having a conversation. Yeah. Well, I'm sure, I'm sure people will. Uh, yeah. I've, I've, our previous guest and we should make the connection. It was a, a thank you to, um, Jennifer Hutchins for recommending that we interview you next. Um, and she's obviously, I, I, I just put in the newsletter yesterday a piece about her, which is, uh, her advice, which is give first before, before you ask. Um, and she, it definitely is a, a shining example of that. Yeah. She, um, so yeah, in the spirit of um, her recommending you, uh, our final question to you is who should we interview next? Well, I have a partner named Dr. UC Erekainen. It's a fascinating man and he is a cardiologist 
and he and I have been studying neuroplasticity together. And we have a, a program called Your Genius Code Unlocked where we take a life script and he adds brainwave entrainment. And so brainwave entrainment is when we induce brain states so that we can reach not just the subconscious mind, but the unconscious mind as well. So we're going into ancestral programming and helping to release blocks in order to, it's not about the achievement of the goal. It's really about to have the achievement of joy. Mm -hmm. Wow. That sounds fascinating. Definitely. Well, when this goes live, we'll, we'll ask you to make the connection uh, to Dr. Yussi. Kynan. Kynan. Okay. Well, we'll look forward to that. And, and we'll put in your links to your program and your site in the show notes and any social media links you want us to link to. Yeah. But also I would say to anyone, um, it would be, um, having not spent a huge amount of time, but I, I, I went through the book, um, and Kindle, um, and took some, some great, um, so, well, what I'm calling it saying is it's called true love, true, true self. Um, you call it the journey to self love, but when having, read it and downloaded it. It really is a guidebook and it's full of wisdom and great tools for, as I said, the, what the piece on breaking down affirmations. And I've always struggled with how to write good affirmations. And now I know exactly how to do that. So I'd, I'd recommend that anyone get a copy of that on Kindle and download it. It's, it's very good. And, um, thank you. and just thank you, Barbara, for your time and your, uh, and your amazing insight and wisdom and sharing your experiences and being so um, transparent and honest with us. It's uh, been fantastic. And I really appreciate thank it. You, Mark. Well, thank you for all your wonderful questions. Well, thank you. And um, we'll follow up soon. Okay, that's all for now, folks. Now, here's my ask of you. Please follow this podcast on Apple or Spotify or whatever player you use. Also, please subscribe to our new Random Collisions newsletter. We really are working to build a global community of action takers, action engines of people that really care about the problems that need solving. Thank you very much, and see you next time.